This is DIA Connections. On the offensive side, essentially what we would do is develop what we called campaign analysis products for key Al-Qaeda figures to really develop a precise intelligence picture of where these guys were located. This notebook really allows us to be a fly on the wall in the compound because we can almost hear bin Laden solicit the input of his family. President Obama came back to the Oval Office and it was at that point that he turned to me and said that all hell could break loose today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of DIA Connections. It's about the Defense Intelligence Agency's support in the hunt for Osama bin Laden. What you're hearing over and over again is the name Jessica. The shouts are coming from photographers requesting that actress Jessica Chastain turn in their direction and strike a pose. The year is 2013, and the reason is the movie Zero Dark Thirty. If you've never watched it, you should check it out. It's good. And it was pretty popular, both at the box office and at the award ceremonies. The award goes to Jessica Chastain, Zero Dark Thirty. Chastain won a Golden Globe for Best Actress. And then there was the Academy Awards. The first Oscar goes to Zero Dark Thirty. It was nominated in five categories, including Best Picture. The movie is about the manhunt for Osama bin Laden, which of course climaxes with the dramatic and heroic efforts of the U.S. Navy SEALs raid that killed him in Obadabad, Pakistan on May 1st, 2011. And in case you didn't know, Zero Dark Thirty is actually a military term for 30 minutes after midnight. The raid on the compound happened at half past midnight. And here's something else that many, many people might not be aware of. It's something that was completely missing from the movie, left out entirely. And that would be us, the Defense Intelligence Agency. Not one mention. I guess we ended up on the cutting room floor. Well, that's Hollywood for you. The success of the entire mission, from locating his whereabouts to capturing or killing him, was truly a collaboration of not just the DIA, but the entire intelligence community. But we do want to share some of our support efforts. In a few minutes, you'll hear our historian Paul Isaacson's conversation with a DIA senior intelligence analyst. He was part of the Joint Intelligence Task Force for Combating Terrorism. And you'll also hear from two others that were not with the DIA, but became connected to the raid in very different ways. The first is Pete Souza. Pete took the picture from inside the White House of President Obama and the national security team when the raid was underway. It's called the Situation Room Photograph. You know the one. Everyone's staring and watching the raid unfold with their hearts in their stomachs and lumps in their throats. And yes, with Secretary of State Clinton's hand over her mouth. We also spoke with Nellie LaHood. She spent years doing meticulous research of declassified documents that were seized from the Abbottabad compound. But before listening to those conversations, we begin with the attack at the site of the World Trade Center in New York, the first time. Police say that it may in fact have been a bomb, a massive bomb, that caused an explosion to rip through the PATH train station below the Trade Centers just after noon today. February 26th, 1993. That was the first time terrorists attempted to bring down the towers. They detonated approximately 1,200 pounds of explosives in the underground parking garage 
at the World Trade Center. There are people confirmed We've dead. called this the terror at the tower, and it's made even more so by the fact that it was an explosive device. Mm -hmm. And from now on, people in New York are going to feel even more vulnerable than they've ever felt before. And Six people died in the attack, and more than 1,000 people were injured. Middle Eastern terrorism had arrived on American soil, and Al-Qaeda was on the radar. Then came September 11th, 2001. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. One of the four planes hijacked on 9-11 was American Airlines Flight 77. It flew into the southwest corner of the Pentagon. There were 184 victims. The fatalities included 55 military personnel and 70 civilians. Seven of those were from the Defense Intelligence Agency. Less than three miles from the Pentagon, across the Potomac River at DIA headquarters, was someone who watched the blue sky turn black. At that time, Joe, and we're only going to use his first name, was working as a military capabilities specialist. He was gracious enough to share his experiences about that day and about his and DIA's role in locating the person responsible. He spoke with DIA historian Paul Isaacson. Joe, did you have a gut feeling of who was responsible that day, that morning? Did you have a gut feeling of who was responsible? Or were you just thinking, I have no idea what's going on here? I think all of us kind of knew it was bin Laden and al-Qaeda, we had a sense of what the, the broad nature of the, the threat from al-Qaeda was. And this just, it bore all the hallmarks of an al-Qaeda attack. It was, it was spectacular. It was you know, multiple targets near simultaneously. It was mass casualty. So we, we all basically knew right, right then and there who it really was. Tell us a little bit about how your career and your work progressed from the attack forward. Now, I'm from New York originally, uh, so not only did they hit our country, but they hit the city I grew up just outside of. They hit the city I worked in. They hit my employer. It was probably two or three nights after the attack. So it might have been the night of the, uh, the 13th of September. I actually got a call at home from an Army lieutenant colonel who was part of my the office I had originally worked in. And he had already been assigned to the Afghanistan crisis cell, as it was then called. And he said, Joe, I got some news for you. And he said something I'll never forget. He goes, Joe, the only way you could be closer to the fight is if you were going to be parachuting into Afghanistan. I felt like I won the lottery. I was just ecstatic to be, you know, part of the response. After the 9-11 attacks, Joe served in the Defense Intelligence Agency's Joint Intelligence Task Force for Combating Terrorism. He was the senior intelligence analyst in the branch responsible for intelligence support to counterterrorism operations against al-Qaeda. That included al-Qaeda leadership in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Tell us about the size and the scope of the effort that DIA took on this task force. It was pretty significant. I'm not sure how many analysts were reassigned to it, but it was certainly, I would say, well over 100. And we were 24-7 and doing everything from, you know, helping determine 
what targets should be struck during the campaign to what uh, the Taliban leadership was doing to what the Al-Qaeda leadership was doing to what the situation was on the ground that awaited our, our ground forces. Was there a shift between uh, what was before kind of a watching for terrorism, trying to prevent it? Uh, was there a shift from that to more of a, we're going to go find these guys and get these guys before they can do anything? Yes, there absolutely was. Because DIA's role in counterterrorism had historically been one of what we call indications and warning. So essentially trying to determine if there are attacks that could impact U.S. military or Department of Defense interests anywhere in the world. On the offensive side, essentially what we would do is develop what we called campaign analysis products for key Al-Qaeda figures. And what we would do is weave together intelligence from a wide range of sources, intelligence assets on the ground, technical intelligence collection, overhead imagery, as well as reporting from allied intelligence services that, that shared information with us to really develop a solid, precise intelligence picture of where these guys were located. Joe, what would you say to people who, who just would be frustrated and say, "How I can't believe it took so long to catch this guy. What would you say to them? It's extremely difficult to find one person if they maintain a low enough profile and have exceptional operational security and communication security. So now transfer that to the other side of the planet, to somebody who is living in a compound that is essentially totally off the grid. Only contact with the outside world is through probably one individual who himself has exceptionally good communication security and operational security. And taken together, that just offers a very, very small intelligence signature to collect against. It's one of the, one of the hardest possible collection targets from an intelligence standpoint. We'll get back to Joe in a minute, but to further illustrate his point, we wanted you to hear from Nellie LaHood. She's done exhaustive research on actual correspondence letters between bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda associates. We spoke with Nellie at length, and you'll hear that conversation later. But for now, Listen to Nelly reading a letter bin Laden wrote in 2004 to one of those associates regarding security measures. With respect to your security situation, the default position for all the brothers should be to hide. As to those whose work necessitates movement and meetings, they should do so through letters and by relying on a very limited number of couriers. We propose two or three at most. Otherwise, they should not move from their hideouts unless it is absolutely necessary. So, Joe, you realized early in the game that these gatekeepers, these couriers, had direct contact with bin Laden, and they would be the key to finding him, right? Tell us how, tell us how that all came together. Yeah, so that, that was our, our working hypothesis. There was not a lot of information pointing one way or another, but we thought that was the most likely way to, to get access to bin Laden. So what we had done was gone back to all the historical reporting, even pre 9-11, to determine, you know, what networks bin Laden was operating in, who helped facilitate him, who helped move him. And we had a pretty good idea of where he was through late 2001 in the mountains of Tora Bora, 
uh, and then into early 2002 before he really kind of vanished across the, the border into Pakistan. Was this process mostly frustrating or mostly exciting or, you know, was it mostly dead ends or was it every day brought a new clue that was like, we're getting closer? Tell us about how this felt, if you will. There were a lot more dead ends than we would have liked, uh, but that's kind of the nature of the business. And, you know, for every lead that you get that you think is valuable, you know, there, there are 10 others or 20 others that are not so valuable. Ultimately, I can't say that I was terribly optimistic. I can say certainly that we were never going to stop trying. Why were you not optimistic? Yeah, it just had taken such a long time and the reporting was consistently so meager. But it was around late 2009 into 2010 that we actually started making pretty decent headway on one of the gatekeepers that was ultimately not the one that did lead to bin Laden, but I actually thought it was a fairly promising lead. And we started making some pretty decent headway there, which is when May 1st, 2011 rolled around. Speaking of May 2011, tell us about how you learned of the raid on bin Laden. I remember very clearly it was Sunday night. I was at home watching the Mets-Phillies game on Sunday night baseball. Now the pitch, and it's line foul into the seats down the third base line. And I'll tell you what's going on. And at some point that evening, I got a text from a buddy of mine who was um, another DI analyst, but he was on rotation at the White House. The crowd is chanting USA. And the reason for that is that there are reports circulating. I am not sure if they've yet been confirmed by the White House. And the text said, POTUS is going to be speaking on TV tonight. You're probably going to want to watch. And I thought, oh, my God, we got him. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. President Obama's late-night announcement on May 1st sparked spontaneous and joyous celebrations across America. The laborious efforts of Joe, his DIA teammates, and the other agencies in the intelligence community finally paid off. The manhunt for Osama bin Laden that spanned the presidencies of Clinton, Bush, and Obama had come to an end. Hours earlier, from the Situation Room in the White House, the president and his national security team were huddled together receiving live updates of the raid. In the corner was an unassuming photographer capturing a watershed moment the day the war on terror notched its most important victory. I thought when I walked out of that room that I had some good photographs. This is Pete Souza. I was the chief official White House photographer for all eight years of the Obama administration. The first photograph of a sitting United States president, William Henry Harrison in 1841. The first president to appoint the first official White House photographer, John Kennedy in 1960. And the first president to give a photographer access to every place he went, every classified meeting, every single day, Barack Obama. That was the deal Pete Souza made with him. And that unlimited access put him in exactly the right place at exactly the right time to capture an indelible moment in American history. 
and Pete was nice enough to chat with us about that day. Pete, thanks for joining us. My first question is when did you first realize that something different or out of the ordinary was going to happen? I think it was like around Wednesday of that week prior to the raid. Uh, I was told it was going to be on Sunday. I figured that it was a, some kind of a special ops mission. The president had come back to the White House early from playing golf. Was that when you first met up with him? The first meeting that day, May 1st, at w- around 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern time in the Situation Room with all the principals, I, I walked in with President Obama and they immediately started discussing the last minute details of uh, the raid on the uh, bin Laden compound. He left that meeting, you know, after maybe an hour or so. He walked back to the Oval Office and it was at that point that he turned to me and said that, you know, all hell could break loose today. <laughs> oh man, when the president turns to you and says something like that, what, what goes through your mind? What were you feeling? I think my overall feeling throughout that day was, you know, especially leading up to the raid itself, was, uh, holy shit, this is going to be a historic day. There's something about when you realize you're in the middle of history on important days such as this, that your senses are, are really heightened and you're trying to not let anything pass you by. You're not trying to make assumptions about what's important in the, in the moment. You know, you're thinking about what's important for history, really. Pete said that his job was to be an observer, not a participant, and to capture real moments for history. Doing that in the White House was not unfamiliar territory to him. In the 1980s, he worked for five and a half years as a junior official photographer for President Ronald Reagan. I've got an idea for another picture. (laughs) Did you get that piece? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your comfort level in this situation? I mean, you don't get any do-overs in a circumstance like this. What are you most concerned about? I, I felt entirely comfortable and confident. You know, I've been through a, a lot in my career. I had worked at the White House before. I was not intimidated. I knew the White House. I knew how things worked. My senses were heightened and knew, knew the, the gravity of this moment, of this day. I was thinking about my exposure and my focus point and what shutter speed and aperture to use. There were no windows. It was lit by uh, what photographers call mixed lighting. There were some fluorescent lights and some incandescent lights, which made it challenging for photographer. And so he walked into that room. I guess it was like right around 3.30 in the afternoon, middle of the night in Pakistan just as the the helicopters were about to land at the compound. I was coming into the room right behind the president and other people were starting to come into the room. And I could see that the room was just gonna completely fill up because there's just like not enough seats, people are standing and I had to like pick a spot. And I I picked a spot uh, on the back left corner as you walk into the room so that I could look back and kind of see all the faces. So think about this. As the raid to capture the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks and the most wanted man in history was about to begin, how ironic was it that almost 10 years earlier, when Pete was working for the Chicago Tribune, he found himself on the other side of the world as a result of the very same person? 
my uh, editor at the Tribune asked me if I would be willing to try to get into Afghanistan coming through the north because the border with Pakistan, where pretty much all the media was, was completely closed and nobody could get into Afghanistan. And so I ended up flying first to Russia, then Tajikistan, and got into Afghanistan. And then we uh, took a horse over the Hindu Kush mountains. And by then it was, you know, there was like three or four feet of snow. It was like 20 degrees. And, and we made it over the Hindu Kush mountains so that we could be just outside of Kabul to cover the beginning of the war. The Defense Intelligence Agency's role was to do what we've been doing since 1961, get the best possible information to the warfighters. It was accomplished by working within the Joint Abbottabad Coordination Cell. They answered questions like, who was likely to be in the house? What kind of security would there be? What would the weather patterns be that night? And are there air defenses in the region? It was intelligence the SEALs would need for a successful mission. Pete, can you talk about the atmosphere in the room? What are you sensing? The feeling in the room was just tension. You could feel it. You've got the top people in our government, in our, the executive branch of our government, all of them are jammed into this tiny room. Here they are. Here's the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the President, the Vice President, Chief of Staff. These are decision makers. They're in this moment. There's nothing they can do. It's like they're, they they had made the decision to, to launch this raid. Now it's completely up to, to these guys on the ground. And they can't do anything about it. Pete took 1.9 million photographs in his eight years with the Obama administration. During the 40 minutes he was in the room witnessing history, he took 100. The one he chose to be released publicly two days later is a riveting account that speaks to the tension. That's the one with everyone transfixed on the events unfolding in the compound and with Secretary of State Clinton's hand over her mouth. (laughs) Throughout those 40 minutes, various people had their hand up to their mouth. You know, whether it was Bob Gates or President Obama or Joe Biden or, you know, and and it just so happened that this clear, to me, this clearly was the best picture. Mostly what I was looking for when I was trying to decide which which picture from that room we were going to select was how did everybody else look? When you have that many people in a picture, inevitably somebody is going to be looking down or somebody's going to be in the middle of a blank there, there wasn't any like sort of off moment with with anybody, and then Hillary's face, you know, certainly added to I guess the drama of it in some ways. In the ten years since the photo was taken, Pete's received numerous accolades and recognition for it, with perhaps the best compliment of all coming from Hillary Clinton, who said, "I didn't even know Pete was in the room." Oh, and one more thing from Pete, for accuracy purposes. He wanted us to make sure that we knew exactly when the Situation Room photo was taken, especially because it might not be when you thought. The picture was was made at 4.05, 4.05.04 to be exact. And according to the public timeline, that's about the same time that the first helicopter was exiting the compound. And then three minutes later, the team destroyed the chopper that had crashed. And three minutes after that, the backup helicopter comes in. So, you know, I can't say for sure exactly what's happening, but it's around the time 
that that the first helicopter is is exiting the compound. After a short break, we'll talk about what was on board those two helicopters that safely left the compound, in addition to the heroic SEAL team. This is DIA Connections. Freedom, diversity, equality, democracy, prosperity, community, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Principles that are the heart of our country. Principles that the Defense Intelligence Agency is committed to safeguarding. Breaking new details about North Korea's missile launch. Russia test firing its new intercontinental ballistic missile nicknamed Satan-2. The international situation is the most complex and demanding that I have seen in all my years of service. We have taken an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We speak truth to power and safeguard the information with which we have been entrusted. We do this to protect the freedoms of all Americans, our allies, and future generations around the world. Committed to excellence in defense of the nation, D.I.A. Osama bin Laden's body was on a helicopter that left Abbottabad, Pakistan. It was DIA that led a U.S. government scientific effort supporting absolute identity. In a press conference following the raid, a Department of Defense spokesman said, quote, the possibility of a mistaken identity on the basis of the analysis is approximately 1 in 11.8 quadrillion. I'll let you count the zeros, end quote. Also on board one of the two helicopters were garbage bags filled with hard drives, DVDs, cell phones, documents, and more. The material was brought to the CIA and to the Defense Intelligence Agency's National Media Exploitation Center, where experts from the Abbottabad Joint Media Exploitation Task Force sifted through the mountain of information. As an executive agent of document exploitation, the DIA had 20 analysts on site. One of those was Joe, the senior intelligence analyst who we heard from earlier. Here he is again with historian Paul Isaacson. What kinds of things did we find there during the raid on bin Laden's house? And how does that, how does that help us in the future? Yeah, the, the information that the SEALs brought back was just really an unparalleled goldmine of information just to get a great insight into how they conduct operations, what they what the nature of their relationship with their local enablers was like, what the nature of their relationship was with their affiliate organizations in places like the Arabian Peninsula and Iraq and North Africa and East Africa. You know, what sorts of things that we were doing that that scared them? What sorts of things that we were doing that didn't scare them? Various personality quirks within the organization. For an Al-Qaeda analyst, it was really just an absolute goldmine to sift through that information. Much of that gold mine Joe referred to remains classified for national security reasons, but a lot of it was declassified by the CIA in 2017. And by a lot, I mean enough material that it would take someone years to go through. And that's exactly what Nellie LaHood did. According to the CIA's website, they declassified and released nearly 470,000 items. 
Now, the bulk of these are materials already in the public domain, such as newspaper articles and books and so on. Two research assistants helped me go through over 96,000 files to identify the internal communications, nearly 6,000 Arabic pages. The most important items are the internal communications that were not meant for public consumption, meaning Al-Qaeda secrets. Nellie Lahoud's research has focused on the evolution and ideology of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. She has a PhD from the Research School of Social Sciences at the Australian National University. And she was a senior associate at the Combating Terrorism Center at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. I'm trained as a political theorist, and the study of classical and modern political thought in the Islamic tradition has been the focus of my research career. And so when the CIA declassified everything in November 2017, it made sense that I should study them in their entirety to let the documents tell the history and the story of Al-Qaeda as is since 9-11. Nellie wrote a book based on her findings that's due out in early 2022. It's a first-hand account of Al-Qaeda from 9-11 until the elimination of its founder, as told through the words of bin Laden and his family and his closest associates. It has an interesting title, 18 Minutes, Bin Laden's Abbottabad Papers. The inspiration for the title came from Admiral William McRaven. The special ops raid that led to the killing of Osama bin Laden was codenamed Operation Neptune Spear. Admiral McRaven is credited for being the architect of the mission. The mission was intended to last no more than 30 minutes from the time they landed inside the compound to the time they left. That was the plan, but plans change. Back in 1996, he wrote a book about special operation forces. And one of his findings identified that speed was critical to the success of special operation forces missions. And he concluded that going beyond 30 minutes decreased what he termed relative superiority. The SEALs requested additional time on the ground because they found the electronics on the second floor. Admiral McRaven immediately understood the importance of recovering the electronics and gave the go-ahead. I reached out to Admiral McRaven to find out the additional time that was spent, and he kindly informed me that it was close to 48 minutes. So I consider the book, um, which is based on the electronics, to be a footnote to the additional 18 minutes that the Special Operations Forces team spent. A treasure trove of documents taken the night he was killed has just been released by the CIA, and they shed new light on what he was thinking, reading, and writing in his final days. Nellie, based on your research of the documents, were there falsehoods in the public arena about its content? And how did you go about trying to get more of an accurate account? There's only one way of going about this, which is to read them all and to connect the dots between the letters. Some mistakes are understandable when we didn't have access to the documents. Having said that, there's a lot of analysis that is grounded in fiction and sloppy reading of the documents. I find that those who seek to sensationalize the documents miss the actual sensational story that the documents reveal. Can you give us an example of that? One of the revelations that I uncovered was the fact that bin Laden's wife, Siham, and his daughters, Maryam and Sumeya, had been co-authoring the public statements that we heard bin Laden deliver. So much so that it is not always easy to know where bin Laden's ideas ended and his daughter's ideas began, or vice versa. So one of the challenges in going through all the material was that there were 20 people living on the compound. So it was hard to know which files belonged to which person. And he was using used computers. So I guess you guys had to be careful drawing conclusions from the hard drives. So let me ask you if there was an item in particular that really stood out for you. 
One of the most unique documents that was recovered by the SEALs was a 220-page handwritten document. It's inaccurately described on the CIA website as Bin Laden's journal. It's a challenging document to read, but when I finally deciphered its content, it turned out to be actually a transcription of the family conversations that took place during the last two months of Bin Laden's life. Uh, the family, we learned from that document, met upstairs in the compound to discuss the events of the Arab Spring that started in December 2010. This notebook really allows us to be a fly on the wall in the compound because we can almost hear Bin Laden solicit the input of his family. Earlier, Joe had explained that DIA focused on tracking Bin Laden through a courier system that he and his associates were using to evade detection. They did so by using letters. I asked Nelly to talk about that. It is very clear that the Bin Ladens did not have access to the internet in the compound. Uh, so the letters included family matters, as well as Osama's letters, Bin Laden's letters to his associates in Al-Qaeda on how to run Al-Qaeda and, and various other issues. I asked Nelly to read from the letters. They are revealing and disturbing, like the one we heard earlier. They underscore the significance and urgency of the mission to find him. By 2010, he wanted all the jihadist attacks to be solely focused on weakening the United States. And I'm quoting from a letter. Every spear and every booby trap at our disposal must be put to use to target Americans only. Our resources should not be wasted on others, such as on those who are part of the NATO alliance. For example, if we lie in wait for the enemy on the road between Kandahar and Helmand province, and we see military vehicles passing by, and if the first vehicle happened to be transporting Afghan soldiers, and the second was transporting NATO soldiers, while the third was transporting American soldiers, we would attack the third even if the number of soldiers in the first two was greater. Wow. I'll tell you, that leaves me a little speechless. What was your reaction when you read that for the first time? I read all these documents. So I tried to be uh, as as dispassionate as I could. It, it is it is, it is is something that I would dis- expect from I mean, I've, I've been reading him for a long time. It does not surprise me. You have a letter that speaks to the vigilance of remaining out of sight at their different hideouts, right? Would you please read that one? One of the most important security measures in the cities is to curb the movement of children. Except for medical emergencies, children must not be allowed to leave their homes and must not even be allowed to play in the courtyard unless they are supervised by an adult who can control their voices. Then Bin Laden adds the following, we have successfully adopted these measures for nearly nine years. Nellie, there were plans for more attacks, weren't there? Attacks that were potentially even more impactful than the one on 9-11. Bin Laden was certainly planning, and and I'm quoting um, attacks, the effects of which would far exceed the 9-11 attacks. Bin Laden never wavered from his commitment to attack the United States. And we can see in his letters that uh, he had plans to um, repeat the 9-11 attacks, meaning using planes, as Al-Qaeda did on, on 9-11, or hitting railway lines. The operative who was tasked with planning these attacks and, and carrying them out was captured a few months after the raid. 
Do you think the exploitation of all this material by the intelligence community and by people like yourself can prevent another 9-11? I guess the question is, what can we learn from the documents and why should we study them? How could we not study these documents? That's uh, my answer to this. As to preventing another 9-11, I, I don't do predictions, but I'd like to think that we learn from the documents at the very least how to deal with terrorism more effectively and more efficiently. The National Intelligence Meritorious Unit Citation is an award of the National Intelligence Awards Program for contributions to the United States intelligence community. The DIA was the recipient of this award for its efforts in the Abbottabad raid. Before we go, a final thought from Joe, DIA's senior intelligence analyst for intelligence support to counterterrorism operations. Honestly, I just feel very thankful that I was on a team at DIA that, uh, you know, we, we are committed to helping to support the warfighter. And if, you know, you had said to me on 9-11, you're going to be involved in some minor way to help to uh to bring justice to bin Laden, you know, I would have I would have given anything. In 2021, the Defense Intelligence Agency celebrates 60 years of commitment to excellence in defense of the nation. To learn more, check us out on social media or go to dia.mil. And please, don't forget to rate, review, and follow DIA Connections. Thanks for listening.